Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information visit heartbeatchurch.org.au We started in the book of Judges in chapter 1, which describes what is being known as the Canaanization of the Israelites. The book tracks how the Israelites, how the Israelites, after entering into the Promised Land, and Joshua dividing out the land, the, the uh, inheritance amongst the tribes, and how Israel fails to be obedient to Yahweh's commandments. And the overarching theme of the book is that without a king, Israel does whatever they want. The people do what is right within their own eyes. And the land quickly spirals into a mess of idolatry, murder, lust, rape, and sexual immorality. All the evilness of the Israelites becomes the norm. And one of the amazing things about the book of Judges is how it is written from a literary perspective. How it is structured is what, when this, what is known as a spiral composition. What it does is the author starts off really good. At the top, we get the Israelites doing kind of well. And then as each progressive narrative happens about the judges, each judge gets worse and worse and worse. And in our introductory narrative to the first of the 12 judges, we meet Othniel from the tribe of Judah. Othniel leads the charge. And as we get down to the Gideon narrative there at the bottom of the figure, we see that that's when things really turn bad. When we get to the last and final judge, Samson, there is no rest in the land. Samson does not lead the people, is how Yahweh intended. Now in Judges chapter 2 and chapter 3, this is what is known as the second introductory narrative. Judges has two introductions, two stories it introduces, and two conclusions. Now, this second introductory narrative is like what the narrator is kind of giving us a historical overview. This is his perspective of the events that have happened. And the narrator tells us that the fundamental reason why the Israelites will continue to fail is that because the generation after Joshua's death does not know Yahweh and what he has done for the Israelites. The reason why the Israelites are able to be obedient during the time of Joshua is because the people know Yahweh. They have seen his works. But as that generation is gone, no one knows who Yahweh is. And the formula is quite straightforward. The period of Joshua, everyone sees Yahweh's works. Israel serves Yahweh. In the day of the the elders who survived after Joshua, they recount all the stories of Yahweh's great works. And Israel continues to serve Yahweh. But in that next generation, the days after the elders have died, the people simply do not know about Yahweh. 
Therefore, they turn to other gods instead. The era of the judges is the grandchildren generation. And in the final chapters of the book, we learn that both the grandsons of Moses and the grandson of Aaron, the high priests, are operating within this Canaanized Israelite state. And the reference to the children of both, the grandchildren of both Moses and Aaron is significant. For the, for the continual knowledge of Yahweh was the responsibility of the priest. However, blame cannot be laid just simply at Aaron's grandson or Moses' grandson for failing to teach the people about Yahweh. One of the fundamental commandments for all the Israelites was the Shema, or literally here. From Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And this verse was foundational for every single Israelite. They were to recite the Shema or hear every single day. The importance of the Shema laid on the emphasis of the parents to instruct their children carefully, to talk about these commandments in the home, when they're on the road, before and after going to sleep. The Israelites were, in fact, to tie visible reminders on their hands, put verses on their foreheads, write them on the door frames of their houses and their gates. The intention was that not only the priest would instruct all the Israelites, but the parents would instruct the future generation. What we have here in this period is the systematic failure of people to teach the next generation. And with this loss of knowledge of Yahweh and what he has done comes a loss of shalom, of peace and rest. Yahweh promised in his covenant that obedience would bring life. They also promised in that same covenant, disobedience would bring wrath and anger. And by Israel serving the Baal and the Asherim, the full covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28 come out. The Israelites are handed over to raiders. They are sold into the hands of their enemies. And every time they go into battle, Yahweh's hand is against them. And since Yahweh's hand is against the Israelites, this means that it's not the nations around them who are Israel's enemies. The true enemy of Israel is, ironically, Yahweh himself. As Yahweh hands over the Israelites to their enemies in their hands, they are literally in the Hebrew squeezed. That gives an amazing picture of these nations grasping Israel so tightly. They're just squeezing the life out of them. And as these nations continue to squeeze the Israelites, they start to groan just as they did under the cruel whips of Pharaoh in Egypt. But Pharaoh was the enemy of Israel then. We've learnt now, the enemy of Israel is Yahweh himself because of their 
disobedience. But Yahweh always brings a solution. And his solution to their problems is to raise up a judge. However, even this solution is flawed. For the fundamental issue, which we are starting to notice, is the Israelites do not listen. They do not learn. And despite what this judge will do for the Israelites, despite rescuing them from their oppressors, what is fascinating is it doesn't matter how much they groan because of their worship of foreign gods, doesn't matter how much this deliverer will save and what this judge will remove from them. The Israelites continually go back to worshipping foreign idols and foreign gods. What's even more remarkable is that every time the people groan or literally yelp in pain, this isn't a cry of repentance. This is just a cry of pain, as in anyone who hurts themselves. And despite being against Israel, Yahweh has mercy. The Israelites aren't asking for forgiveness in their groaning, yet Yahweh still responds compassionately to their painful cries for help. This is the irony of the book. Despite the horror that serving these foreign gods brings to their land and to their lives, they simply refuse to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. And the terrible reality is, which the book of Judges in its literary structure notes, that each time the judge comes, the people are more disobedient in the next generation. And that continues on and on and on. Until Yahweh himself declares in Judges chapter 2 from verse 20, because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when they died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of Yahweh and walk in it as their ancestors did. Yahweh had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. If the Israelites will not listen to these judges, Yahweh reiterates his threat that he gave earlier in chapter 2. He will not drive out the nations. Thus the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites will live amongst the people, testing them to see what they will do, which path they will take. And this overview in chapter 2, which the narrator has given us, sets the scene for what we're about to encounter with the 12 judges whom we will meet. And with this spiral pattern, the first judge, Othniel, from Judah, he is righteous. And just as in chapter 1 with the conquest narratives, which show Judah leading the way and defeating the Canaanites and concluding with Dan, who was absolutely wicked, in the same way, we begin with our first judge, Othniel, from the tribe of Judah, and our final and twelfth judge is Samson, from the tribe of Dan. 
One of the things with, the, with the each judge narrative is the author has this deliberate pattern for how the story is to go. Now, with Othniel, he fulfills this eight-step process perfectly. It begins with the Israelites committing evil in the eyes of Yahweh, Yahweh sending an oppressive nation, the Israelites serving that nation for an X amount of years, the Israelites crying out for deliverance, Yahweh raising up a judge, Yahweh placing his spirit on that judge, Yahweh giving victory to that judge, and the land experiencing rest for the time that judge is alive. So now we kind of got this structure in place. If there's any deviation from one of those steps, we know that something is wrong. We know that chaos is happening. As I mentioned earlier, with the early narratives, Othniel, Ehud, and Barak all follow this eight-step process. When we get to Gideon, some of these steps are missing. It's showing that the Israelites are sinking further and further into chaos. It's the author's brilliant way of showing the consequences of sin. The chaos in Israel doesn't just ruin the land, it ruins his very own narrative itself. And in coming to Othniel's narrative, it's very, very brief. A total of five verses and 108 Hebrew words seems to have very little to offer us. But this is the amazing thing about the narrator of Judges. Despite the brevity of this narrative, Othniel's encounter with Kushan Rishavim, king of Aram Naharim, has some key words. And those key words give us insight into the significant threat this king possesses, and the amazing victory that Yahweh offers. And we read here from Judges chapter 3, from verse 7, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. The anger of Yahweh burned against Israel, so he sold him into the hands of Cushan Rishathraim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Years. But when they cried out to Yahweh, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved him. The spirit of Yahweh came on him, so he became Israel's judge and went to war. Yahweh gave Cushan Rishtathamim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. One of the most important clues in this tiny narrative is the name of that king and where he came from. Kusham Rish Athavim means doubly wicked. And Aram Naharim means land with two rivers. What does that mean? Well, it's this clever play on words that we have a doubly wicked king who rules a kingdom with two rivers. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, the Canaanites are described as being wicked. But this king possesses not just wickedness, but double wickedness. 
And this double wicked king from this distant land with two rivers is emphasizing just how truly wicked he is. If you think the Canaanites are bad, well, then this king is really, really bad. And while there's uncertainty over where the exact location of Aram Naharim is, scholars note that it's located in the region of Upper Mesopotamia between the great rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now, in this region includes some cities, Nahor, Pethro, Tunip, and Haran. None of those cities mean anything to you, except if you were a faithful Israelite. For every faithful Israelite that knew their Torah knew exactly where Abraham came from, the city of Haran. In fact, Genesis 12 verse 4 tells us that's exactly where Abram was living when Yahweh called him out with Sarai and Lot, his nephew. This is the region of Ur of the Chaldeans. It was the same location where the great Tower of Babel was constructed. Mesopotamia is the land of the dreaded Babylonians. It is the land of the dreaded Assyrians. Kushan Rishasamim is not simply a leader of a Canaanite state. He's not simply one of the new nations that has arrived to pester Israel. His origins are beyond the Jordan, beyond the Dead Sea. He is in a faraway land. He is a wicked leader of a global superpower. And the threat that this name possesses is drawn out in Yahweh's words from Joshua chapter 24, from verse 2 to 3, where Yahweh said, Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him through Canaan and gave him many descendants. Commentator James Gordon, he argues that Abraham's call out of Haran, out of Mesopotamia, is a proto-exodus. This is a mini-exodus, rescuing Abram from a wicked land of Babel and putting him in the land of promise which Yahweh would give to his descendants. The implication of this tiny narrative from Othniel is that if Israel rejects Yahweh, guess what's going to happen? They're going to go back into the land of Mesopotamia. They would go back to Babylon. In fact, Othniel's narrative, it is prophetic, hence why these books are called the former prophets. They're not just stories, they are prophecies. Othniel's account foreshadows what the Assyrian Empire will do to the ten tribes when it removes them and puts them back in Mesopotamia. Othniel's narrative foreshadows what the Babylonian armies would do to Jerusalem when they exiled the people back in Babylon. Yahweh rescued Abraham and his family from these lands. Kushan Rish Ashalim is such a terrifying villain because he's going to bring the people back there. 
They're going to be dominated by a king from the wicked land of Babel. And like all good enemies, he remains anonymous. This mysterious figure from a far away land. So how is this oppressive eight-year rule of terror from this foreign leader out there who we don't know about? He is broken by Yahweh's spirit coming upon Othniel, the son of Kenaz, who was raised up to be the deliverer of Israel. And this is the second reference made to Othniel in the book of Judges, and the third within the canon of the former prophets. Now, Othniel, he represents a, trans, a transitional figure. He comes from that era of the righteous generation of Joshua, and now who has witnessed Yahweh's great works. So here is the perfect man to lead the next generation, someone who has actually seen what Yahweh has done when he defeated the Canaanites. Now he's going to lead a new era for the Israelites to follow the Torah. However, from a sociological and a biological perspective, Othniel has some significant disadvantages in his way. Both Judges chapter 1, verse 13, and Judges 6, 9 identify Othniel in this way. Othniel is the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the reason why the narrator does this is to emphasize Othniel's low status. Kenaz is Kenaz, um, sorry. <coughs> Kenaz is, is Othniel's. Now, let me start that again. Kenaz is Othniel's father. Caleb is his uncle. Kenaz is Caleb's younger brother. Now, in the ancient Near East, the youngest son was always overlooked in favor of the eldest. Caleb is the eldest. Kenaz is the youngest. Therefore, by extension, Kenaz's son, Othniel, would not have any place within the tribe of Judah. Othniel has no grounds for leadership. He should not be in any position of authority over the tribe of Judah. It should be Caleb's sons who are leading the Israelites into battle. However, for the readers of Genesis... I'd be acutely aware that Yahweh continually overrid these ancient Near Eastern um, these ancient Near Eastern practices of the elder being favoured over the younger. Take Abel and Seth being favoured over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Judah and Joseph over Jacob's older sons. Now here is Othniel, the son of the younger brother who is being elevated above the eldest. It adds to this dimension of his godly character. For it's part of the precedent of the heroes of the Israelite faith for the younger to be greater than the elder. But not only was Othniel the son of the youngest in Caleb's family. His biology is 
a Canaanite. His ancestry is traced to Kenaz, the son of Esau, the wicked older twin brother of Esau. Now, despite being the youngest and not even being a fully-fledged Israelite, Othniel represents the ideal of how Yahweh's judges are to operate. Othniel has married Caleb's daughter, Aksa. And in defiance of Israelites' actions, who seem to love to marry the daughters of the Canaanites, Othniel is married to a righteous woman from the tribe of Judah. Knowing these bits of background about Othniel's history shows us that he is the type of leader Yahweh wants to be leading his people. Someone who is raised up by his spirit. Someone who doesn't have their outwardly looking appearances. Someone who doesn't follow into the trends of the people. This is why Othniel is raised up against the doubly wicked king, Kushan Rish Ashnalim. And just as Othniel successfully campaigned against Dibur with no details, so now his great battle with the doubly wicked king of Mesopotamia, we have no details. All we know is that Othniel went out to war and, his hand, and he, Yahweh gave him into the hands of Othniel. Now it's the reversal of everything that we've been reading so far. So far we've just read the na- Israelites falling into the hands of the foreign nations Yahweh has sent to oppress them. Now we see something is starting to change. Yahweh is trying to reverse this negative spiral amongst the land of the Israelites by his spirit-empowered judges. And unlike the other victories of the judges, Othniel has nothing negative underlying it. There's no deception like Ehud, no cowardice like Barak, no brutality like Jephthah, no fear or faithlessness like Gideon or the downright sinfulness of Samson. And in keeping this narrative brief, all we get are the good, positive things about Othniel. His narrative is a model for how all the judges should be. And what's even more significant about Othniel's rising as a judge is the context In chapter 3, verse 7, which says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. When we read, Israel forgot about Yahweh, the implication we assume is that the Israelites just simply forgot, as in they had some sort of amnesia. But Daniel Block argues this word for forgetful is something more sinister than absent-mindedness. It actually means the people disregarded, or more literally, did not take into account. The Israelites made a deliberate decision at this moment to forget about Yahweh. 
and serve the Baals and the Asherahs. And in this action of forgetting, it leads to chaos. As I mentioned earlier, the cry of the Israelites is not a cry of repentance. It's a cry. It's a yelp of pain. But nevertheless, Yahweh in his mercy, despite the Israelites' wickedness, sends them the hero to save them. Through Ophniel, we see another mini exodus occurring. And with this mini exodus, the land experiences a 40-year rest under the wise and godly leadership of Othniel. Now, the brevity of Othniel's narrative, as readers, it leaves us hungry for more. We want to know more about this man. From what we can kind of gather about this king, Othniel's battle would have been as heroic as the exploits of Joshua perhaps greater than the famous battle of David and Goliath, more exciting than Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And while we can speculate over the logistics of the battle and how Yahweh brought in victory under divine inspiration, the narrator, in writing this prophetic historical narrative, has seen it fit to only give us 108 words of narrative. Perhaps from a deeper intention, the narrator has kept this story short from the simple adage, people remember bad news more than they remember good news. From a theological perspective, Othniel's narrative is tiny compared to the final and twelfth judge, Samson. But perhaps the narrator is giving us a theological clue, the deep impact that wickedness has. For wickedness has far-reaching consequences than righteousness has. Othniel's narrative is like a glass jar. Everything is contained within it. Whereas we get to Samson, it's like the, the jar is dropped. The contents are spilled out Everywhere, there is widespread damage and destruction. But perhaps the brevity of this narrative is because, it, as prophecy, only reference we need is the name Kushan Rish Ahim. If a picture tells a thousand words, and the Hebrews used their writing as paintings, they painted with their words then this name tells us 2,000 words. For this doubly wicked king is a return back to Babel, to the land of the Chaldeans, to the evil that Yahweh called Abraham from. And it serves as a prophetic warning to what will happen to the Israelites if you continue to be disobedience. Othniel delivered Judah and all the Israelites from this threat once. There's not going to be another ruler to stop the Assyrians and the Babylonians when they come to attack Israel and return them back to their ancestral lands in Mesopotamia. And despite the righteousness of Othniel and the spirit that empowered him for combat, was unable to bring lasting change. 
What Othniel does in this narrative is he prepares us for the greater son of Judah. The son that would not fit the model of earthly kingship. The son that would lead the people against a greater enemy than the doubly wicked king who was king of the kingdom of double rivers. Filled with Yahweh's spirit, Othniel could overcome the challenge of this wicked king. Filled with that same spirit, the greater Othniel would overcome a greater enemy who brought true peace to the land that will not last for 40 years, that will not last for a single generation, but for all generations to come. For Jesus Christ, the son of Judah, has come to bring a kingdom and a rule that will never end. Friends, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this wonderfully short story, but so brilliantly written, which just shows us the horrors of when we disregard you and your word. How, God, do we see in this narrative here how desperately you wanted the Israelites to turn back to you And despite their stubborn rebellion, you persisted, Lord. And we thank you on Othniel. We see the model of leadership that we need to be. But for us as Christians, Lord, we see how Jesus is the greater Othniel. He is the one who delivered us from true wickedness, sin and death. And Lord, we thank you that we can now live in peace because of what he has accomplished on the cross through your anointing and powerful spirit. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Rich. Let's stand together and sing of him. Whose kingdom will never end. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Thank you for listening to the Heartbeat Church podcast. For more information about services, ministries and sermons visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.